But it is good to be back, and uh, appreciate Brother Jared filling in for me while I was gone. Appreciate that, brother. He did a great job, and and uh, looking forward to uh, getting into our 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 message tonight. Don't have handouts. I was in the process of making them when that happened, and so that kind of drew me away. So uh, you'll just have, you have to listen old fashioned wise tonight. Isn't that something? Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll uh, dig into God's word together, and uh, we'll pray again at the end of the service. Father, we bow before you this evening. We thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you, Father, for uh, Lord your grace and mercy upon us, Lord. That uh, Father, you bestow every day. Father, thank you for your word that we can gather and uh, study together and worship together. And we just pray that your word would encourage and challenge our hearts here tonight. And, uh, Father, we pray for uh, this lady who just had an accident out here by the church, that you would just uh, comfort her and uh, give her strength and healing and uh, be with her father with this situation. And uh, bless our Bible study now. And I uh, pray that you just receive all glory and honor and praise in all things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Matthew 22 tonight, Matthew 22, and we're going to look at verse 34 through verse 40. We're looking at tonight uh, the great commandment, the great commandment, and uh, I love reading this passage as you come to it throughout the Gospels and um, seeing what Jesus says here that ties to the Old Testament, and uh, certainly the great commandment uh, we all know is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And uh, I want to look briefly at that here tonight, and then we'll have a time of prayer afterwards. But we're going to read verse 34 through verse 40 and uh, notice a few things together about this. The Bible says in Matthew chapter number 22 and verse number 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When we look at the Bible, we see all kinds of commandments, isn't it? There's life is full of commandments in various forms. We have commandments or rules or instructions from our, uh, our bosses, from our parents, from our spouses, if you know what, that, what, know what I mean by that, honeydew lists. You know, those, I see those as commandments that we've got to obey. Uh, some of us men would identify with that. Uh, but we have all kinds of commandments that we're called to do, and we're to follow them. But we don't always follow them as we ought to, especially when we're maybe learning them. You know, one of our commandments or instructions to our children is that when we put them down to bed, they are to go to sleep. So, in other words, when we put Jubilee and David down to bed, they're to go to bed. They're not to get up and continue playing. Well, David, he's had the worst time with this as of late. About five seconds after you shut the door, you can hear him up and playing. The light switch goes on, and he's got his toys out, and he just apparently thinks we just don't hear him. He's invisible and can do whatever he wants. And uh, sometimes, now to combat that, we've kind of left the door open a little bit so that we can keep an eye on him, and he knows that we're watching. And uh, now when we put him to bed, he'll ask us, Dad, will you leave the door open? Because I'm feeling like I'm probably going to play tonight. <laughs> and uh, at least he's honest, you know. He's, <laughs> he's honest with this temptation that he's, he's feeling, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time going to bed without playing if you shut that door. 
And maybe we all can uh, identify with that on some level where we're tempted to do things and go against what we're commanded to do. But commandments reach far beyond home and work and school. In fact, commands are rooted firstly in Scripture. The Bible's full of commandments. And in this text, we see the greatest commandment of all, and really uh, the two in which all the law and prophets hang or depend upon, is these two. And this particular text that we're reading, it marks the fourth test from the Jews against Jesus. And I find it interesting that you read in verse 34, the Pharisees hear that Jesus put the Sadducees to silence, right? So he just put them in their place. And the Pharisees, they're not really rejoicing in that because they're kind of at odds with the Sadducees. Instead, their whole aim is, we're going to still try to get Jesus. We're going to try to test him. We're going to try to trap him. So their focus is on him. And so we see in verse 35, they give a question from a lawyer with the intention to test him. They're always testing him, wanting to trap him, wanting to find him guilty of something, or maybe hear a contradiction from his words. They questioned his authority uh, about taxes and about the resurrection, and now they're going to bring it about the law and try to trap him with that. But what Jesus gives us here is a clear look at not only the greatest commandment for them, but it is also the greatest commandment for us. It is the greatest commandment for us, and that is to love God with all that is in us. So we ask ourselves, do we love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind? And if we say we do, would that be evident in the life in which we are living? So I want to point out just a few things tonight about this commandment. Uh, Notice with me, firstly, number one, it is a required commandment. Uh, Commandments of God are required. They're not optional. They're not suggestions, uh, they are required. And and notice that this commandment is firstly rooted in the Old Testament. Now, the question given to Jesus here, it takes us back to the Old Testament law because that's what they're asking about, right? What is the great commandment in the law? And this is the reason they had a lawyer to ask this question. Now, a lawyer in that day wasn't necessarily a lawyer like we think of in our day, one that's, uh, you know, trying to work on behalf of someone on a case, but rather... This kind of lawyer was a scribe who was, his specialty was in interpreting and copying the law. So they would have been very familiar with the commands of God in the Old Testament and the law of Moses. And so the Pharisees, they're leaning on him to kind of trap Jesus with this question. Which is the great commandment of the law? Which one's the greatest? Well, his question may seem innocent enough, but it reflects an internal Jewish debate in that day on how to rank or summarize all the scriptural commandments and on whether such a ranking is in fact possible or not. So he's really trying to draw Jesus into a, a, a debate of that day to try to really trip him up. But with every attempted trap, Jesus always gave an answer that was crystal clear and that they weren't expecting and uh, something that they just could not overcome. And so when it comes to knowing the law... None knew the law better than Jesus himself, right? Uh, He's the author of the law and his divinity. He knew the law more than any scribe and more than any other Pharisee or Sadducee. He's the author of it. So when we look at this commandment, where do we see its roots come to us? Well, we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 through 6. Let's read this passage, if you would, and just see the roots of this great commandment. And... um, Brother Richard, would you care to get up and close those doors? That sun is beaming in on me, and I'm uh, having a hard time seeing. Uh, it's beaming off a windshield or something. Uh, but just to protect my eyes for a moment, I appreciate that, brother. 
Um, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4 through 6. And uh, notice, notice what the scripture says here. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So you notice that Jesus, he's quoting what is directly in the law. Now, this verse is called the Shema. You've probably heard of that, the Shema or the Shema. Uh, I pronounce it Shema, however, I don't know if that's correct way or not, but it's from that Hebrew word that means here, all right? And so this, this, this section here is really called the Shema, and Israelites, they were to know this by heart. If you read further, they were to teach this to their children. It was to be part of their uh, family life in their home. And so they were to teach this, to know this by heart, and they were to obey it and recite it frequently. This, this commandment that we're reading about was to be interwoven into their life. And uh, so Jesus, he quotes the Shema, and he does quote the first part also. If you read Mark's account uh, in Mark twelve twenty nine, Matthew doesn't record this part, but Mark does. It says, Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he leads into, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. So this command was familiar to these Jews he's talking about that are questioning Jesus, uh, the command to love God with all that is in them. But you're going to find more beyond just this one command. Woven throughout the law, you're going to find this same principle of loving God, loving God, loving God. And I'm going to quote just a few passages that you'll see in the Old Testament where you see the command to love the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy 10 and verse 12 is one. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So that's really a reiteration of what's being said in the Shema here. Again, we see it in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 20. He says, I call heaven and earth, or I think it's 19 and 20, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. One more time, in Joshua 22 and verse 5, he says, Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So you'll see that woven throughout the Old Testament, uh, this, this principle, this command uh, to love the Lord your God and be obedient to him. And so this is what Jesus chooses and brings out. This is the great commandment. So it translates from the Old Testament into the New Testament, which leads me to this second aspect here of it being a required commandment because it is continued in the New Testament. Now, you notice that Jesus doesn't start with fear the Lord. He doesn't start with obey the Lord or serve the Lord because truly loving the Lord is the root to everything else that we do for him. Loving the Lord must be the foundation to who we are and what we do for Christ. All that we could and should do for the Lord must flow from a heart of love for the Lord. Now, God 
desires us to do things and to serve Him, to worship Him out of that response of love, willingly from our own hearts, willingly deep within our own wills. Calvin comments on this, and and he says he means by this that only the free service of our wills is acceptable to Him. Ultimately, the man who comes to obey God will love Him first, God will not have the forced obedience of men, but wishes their service to be free and spontaneous. And that is true of us as believers. Because we have been born again, because we know Him, we love Him. We love Him. And if we love Him, what does it lead to? If we love Jesus, if we love God, it leads to a life of obedience. It leads to a life that fears Him and reverences Him and worships Him and obeys Him. One, of my, one, one passage has always stuck to me with this in regard to loving him and obedience. The connection there is John 14, 15. And Jesus is talking to his disciples in that text, and what does he say to them? He says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments, right? So what, what's the root there to obeying Christ and following Christ? The root there is if you love Jesus. And, and so this is, this is really the foundation of why we do what we do. Why does one keep his commandments? Because he loves him. Now, this commandment from Jesus continues to be the greatest commandment for us today. It's not just a Jewish commandment. It is a Christian commandment, Christian commandment to us. And the chief and first love of every Christian must be this, to love Jesus above everything and everyone else, everything and everyone else. Now, we have a lot of things and people that we love in life. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? We love our spouses. We love our parents. We love our children, our grandchildren. um, We love our friends, our extended family, anyone you could name. But even all of those that are dearest to us, dearest to us, must come in second place to our love for Jesus. And that is probably one of the harder pills to swallow when you look at the outside looking in at Christianity that we love Jesus above everything and everyone. And we'll get into a little bit of why that's, why that's something that's commanded and why it's reasonable for us to do that. But here's, here's one of the hard sayings of Jesus, and it's often taken the wrong way. But Luke 14, 26, Jesus is talking to this big crowd that just came to follow him. It's a large crowd that comes to follow Jesus, and here's what he says to them. He says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you talk about a hard saying. Uh, that'd drive a lot of people out of the church, wouldn't it? Uh, but there is a context understanding to understand here. The word hate here, does, it refers to uh, being disinclined to, disfavor, disregarding contrast to preferential treatment. So it's not in the sense that we are to detest our family, but in the sense that they come second to Jesus. They come second to Jesus. Um, hating here is a Semitic expression for loving less in that particular context. And so we are to love Jesus above even our family and our friends. Now, in contrast to rabbinic tradition, one commentary comments on this way, which permits hatred of one's enemies, particular Gentiles outside of the covenant, Jesus calls his followers to love their enemies. All right? Clearly, then, he is not demanding that we hate our family members in the conventional sense of hatred. Rather, through this shocking hyperbole, he teaches 
that being his disciple means loving him so unreservedly that all others seem to be hatred by comparison. So in, es- in essence, what he's pointing out is that our love for Jesus entirely surpasses our love for others. That doesn't mean you don't love others. I mean, I love my wife dearly, right? I love my children. We would never uh, say we don't love them. But what Jesus is making the point is this, is that he is to be first. He's the first love. Christ is making clear to these Pharisees that loving the Lord with their all is the greatest commandment, and it is required. And that goes against the Pharisees' really practice, right? Did they manifest a love for the Lord first? And they kind of thought they did, but they loved their position and their power and their self and uh, all, the, all the things that were involved with their religion. So loving God first is the chief priority. And the lawyers seem to try and make Jesus single out one commandment as superior to others. Perhaps the Pharisees thought they could use such a response as a way to trap him, but Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, he, he weaves this together saying in verse 40 on these two, loving the neighbor as ourself along with loving God with our heart, on these two depend all the law and the prophets. So to love God with all our all and our neighbor as ourself, that is the sum of the law and the prophets. And so we see why this is a required commandment. This is not something that's optional. It is something that is necessary, that is required of us. But notice number two tonight, that not only is it a required commandment, it is also a reasonable commandment. It is a reasonable commandment. Now, some might look at this and say, well, I should love God with everything in me. Why should I do that? What's he ever done for me? That's kind of how the world thinks, right? Uh, why would I love God? They have so many misperceptions about God, but there's two things I want to consider as to why this is a reasonable commandment. Consider, firstly, the life that God has given us. Consider the fact that life is given to us by God. Now, time would fail us to show how reasonable a command this is in, in, a, in a broad spectrum. But to sum it up, just think for a moment the fact that God has given us life. Shouldn't the created love the creator above all else? That's, we would think that, right? That's how it should be. The created should love the creator. We exist because of him. We breathe because of him. Paul, in preaching to the Gentiles in Athens about their unknown God, he connects that to the one true God, and he tells them in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. So see, he's connecting that to these Gentile pagans that God is the source of all of our life. Now think about the reality that without God creating us, we have no existence. We obviously can't really contemplate what that's like because there'd be no consciousness, there'd be no existence, right? That's hard for us to really wrap our minds around. We would not exist were it not for the Creator, were it not for God. So God, when we look at His creation of us, designed us intricately and purposefully. Our body and soul by a perfect Creator have been fashioned. And this is why David says in Psalm 139, 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God created us not just to exist with no meaning or purpose, but instead we exist and breathe for Him. We are created for His glory and for His honor. Revelation 4.11 tells us this, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, 
to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So considering just our created being, that we are created, and that enough is reason to love God. And yet what we see around us is how many millions upon millions in our world have a hatred for God, a hatred for God. That is the natural disposition of men. They don't like God, right? Why? Because he is the light. That, that, that Jesus said in John 3, 18 or 19, I believe, that the darkness hates the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And so it saddens me in a sense, but at the same time, in a lot of Scripture, we understand why they react the way they react. Uh, I, was, I was listening to yet another, you know, they keep talking about this James Webb telescope and how it's looking back in time and this you know, know-it-all on Fox News is saying, oh, we're looking back at the beginning of the universe, and I just think and think and think of how tragic it is that he fails to realize that, number one, that's bogus, that makes no sense whatsoever, it's unscientific. Number two, that there is an infinite creator God who put all of that there. But not only that, as marvelous as space is, man is the crown of his creation, not even the stars. Man is the crown of his creation. And for this, we ought to love him. Think about this. All of mankind breathes God's air, drinks God's water, eats God's food, and yet they have a hatred for him. Mankind outside of Christ lives in perpetual disobedience to the great commandment we're reading. And that is one way in which we see the mercy of God upon mankind, even those who are unregenerate, continuing in their hatred. I love this quote by Thomas Watson. He says, every time you draw your breath, you suck in mercy. (laughs) Every time you draw your breath, you suck in mercy. So uh, we we understand that knowing we're created by God, that's, that's that's why this commandment's reasonable, because he gave us existence and we have life through him. So we must love him with all of our being because he gave us being. There's nothing more reasonable than loving God. Uh, Secondly, in light of this, Consider not only the life God's given us, but consider the love God's shown us. On top of the life He's given us, has God shown love to us? Absolutely He has. Now, think a moment on whether we're worthy of love at all. Are we worthy of God's love? Well, technically not, are we? We're not worthy, but yet He shows it. God did not love us because we were worthy of love or because we deserve his love. God did not love us because we had much to offer him, and so therefore we've earned it in some way. He loves us purely out of free grace, simply because he chose to love us. Say, why did God choose to love us? Don't ask me that question. (laughs) That's in his mind alone. Because if I was God looking into my creation, I don't know that I could show love as he has shown. That shows our human side, that, that God, God's love is beyond us. Now, you think for a moment, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8, where, where, where God considers Israel and why he chose them, why he loves them, and he tells them in Deuteronomy 7, I believe it's 7 and 8, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping hid the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand 
redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt. You notice he says he didn't set his love on them because of anything in a physical sense or a national sense or any material sense, but rather he loves them despite all of those things. He just chooses to love them. And he's also carrying out his promise that he gave to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He called them out and showed his love on them as his chosen people. And so in that text, what did Israel have to offer to make God love them? Nothing. God says, you're the fewest. And yet still, I chose to love you, to set my heart upon you. And the same thing applies to us. What were they worthy of? What were we worthy of? We were worthy of wrath. God's holy wrath for our own perpetual rebellion and sin. And yet God has given us love beyond compare. And we all know the answer to what the greatest display of love is to us from God. It is not in his daily provision of a meal or a warm bed to sleep in. His greatest display of love towards us is seen in his own son nailed upon a cross dying in agony, beaten, battered, bruised, and bleeding on behalf of us. There is no greater display of love than what Christ endured on the cross for us. The work of the triune God, all of it is an example of love. The Father sent His Son. Jesus willingly gave His life. The Spirit working in providence and bringing all these things to pass. So, So when we look at this, The transaction on the cross is a fruit of the love of God towards us. Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it wasn't that we became good enough for God to love us and then He died for us. He died for us while we were wicked sinners. You read the verse or two before that. He talks about uh, how often will one die for a righteous man or even... Someone they know, he puts that, 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 that scenario. How often will one die for another that's even good? Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15.13, Greater love hath no, man, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know what he told them later in that passage? You're my friends. You're my friends. And so he, he lays down his life for his people. This, this love on the cross extends to, to make us who were sinners his own sons. We were enemies, but now we're reconciled to him. So much is said of the love of God in this. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, and so we are. <laughs> and so we are. Here we find that the depth of God's love towards his people is impossible to undo or remove. I want to read a passage that uh, communicates this truth further in Romans chapter number 8 and verse 35 through verse 39 for a moment. Romans chapter 8 and verse 35 through verse 39. It would be good to read the whole chapter, but there's no time to do that, even up through verse 28 and forward, showing the connection of God's people and how God has brought us out of the world and his love is upon us and it cannot be uh, undone and we cannot be separated from it but look at verse 35 who shall separate us from the love of christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword i mean those are all terrible things as it is written 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. Often when people go through suffering is when they begin to question the love of God, right? I mean, if, anybody, if anyone went through immense suffering outside of Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul would have qualified for that, right? Stoned, imprisoned, left for dead, spent a, spent, spent a, a night at sea through shipwreck, all sorts of things. Surely in those moments, you could have surely said, God, do you really love me like you say you do? But here's Paul writing this. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's not anything in time or eternity that can separate us from the love of God, especially when you consider that his love was set upon us in eternity past, and that which was set upon us back then will find its way all the way to the very end. It can't change. So take the whole context of Romans 8 and understand and consider that God's love upon his people is deeper and wider than we can imagine. And this is one reason Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.21, He says to that church, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. How could anyone not love the Lord, especially if we profess Christ? Let him be accursed if he has no love for the Lord. So what we find is that we as his people, we have a love from him that exceeds anything else. And we know that the created natural man does not have that sort of... uh, not that motive to love God because they don't understand, they do not see this. You see that the reason, the reason that we love God, we can love God, is only because of God's love towards us. Because of regeneration, because of our conversion. Because outside of that, we're just like the rest of the, the world, right? We didn't have a love for Him. It's the love of God towards us that turns our heart to love Him. What did John the Apostle say in his letter? 1 John 4, 19. We love him, why? Because he first loved us. That's, that's the key there. So when pondering the depth of God's love for us, it's really hard to wrap our mind around. His command for us to love him, back with everything in us, I'd say it's a reasonable command for the Creator to give, for the Lord to give to his creation, to his redeemed. Notice, lastly, number three, and I'll close with this. I want you to see that it is a revealing commandment. It is a revealing commandment. And what I mean by that is that this commandment, if obeyed, it is noticeable and that it is uh, evident in our life. Now, we, when, we, when we look at this text, what is he instructing us to do? He's instructing us to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. Mark even uh, includes a, a, a fourth aspect there, all thy strength. But all of these together in total here, what do these areas reveal to us? That we are to love the Lord with all our faculties, with everything that is in us, all of our being. Someone put it this way in a commentary I read. It said, we love God with a heart and soul when we embrace him with our deepest convictions and commitments. We love God with our mind when we understand our past and our present as He does and dedicate our future plans and goals to Him. We love God with our strength when we dedicate our physical body 
its muscles and energy to him. We love God with our strength when we follow him with a determined will and with moral resolve in the face of adversity. That's one way of breaking it down. There's probably others you could designate towards that. But in all that we do in our Christianity, all of our heart is to be given. We're never to give part of ourselves to the Lord, but all of us from beginning to end. When we believe on Christ as Lord and Savior, we believe on Him with what? Half our heart? No, all of our heart, right? That's what regeneration brings us to. When we think about what God's called us to do in our Christian life, we're to do it with all of our heart. And so everything that's in us, we are to love Him with it. And I believe that when we love Him in this way, loving God is evident to those around us. It should be evident in our lives that we love Jesus. It should be. I hope that it is. Does an all-encompassing love for God show itself? Absolutely it does. Our lives testify what or who we love. You know, my kids, they love my mom. Her her name is Tutu to them. That's the Hawaiian grandma. But they often constantly ask, is Tutu coming soon? When's Tutu coming? Is she almost here? When are we going to Tutu's house? Their love for her comes out in their words and their actions and when she gets there, how excited they are to see her, their expressions. And we think about Christ for a moment. How much does Christ cross our thoughts throughout the day? How often do we think about him? How often is he expressed in our words, in our conversations? How often is he seen in our actions and how we live our life? Do we genuinely love him above all else? I believe if we do, it will show in our Christian life. And Paul put it this way, and it shows in his life and his service as an apostle. But 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might not longer, no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. Now, we have to be understanding of this too, that there's a danger that we can depart away from loving him as we ought to love him. We don't always express that or live that out. And I think we see that in the church in Ephesus later down the road. We're studying through Ephesians, and we see a great beginning for the Ephesians, right? And how Paul planted that church and how he grounded them in doctrine and love and Christian living. But in a short time, in Revelation 2-4, Jesus is evaluating that church. And what's one of the things that he says to them? He says... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, or you have left your first love. And so we have to be on guard about that. We have to pay, take heed against that, that we are fulfilling this commandment, because we look at this commandment. I focus on the first one. I didn't really touch a whole lot on loving your neighbor as yourself. That could be a whole other sermon for another time. But this first and great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, that's a challenge in my heart. It's a challenge to all of us. And I pray that uh, we, would, we would take that to heart and evaluate our life in light of that. Is he really our first love? Do we love him above all else? And does that show forth in our Christian life? Well, that's going to conclude our time in Scripture tonight. Um, I hope it's been an encouragement to you and a challenge as well. And um, we are going to have a time of prayer now. And we have a, a prayer list we're going to go over. And I see some new.